Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's issue of Chess Life magazine. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which she examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or subscribe via Google or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Our guest today on the May edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life is Grandmaster Francesco Rimbaldi, who contributed annotations to our cover story on the Cairns Cup. Francesco started playing when he was eight years old in France, taught by his father. By 2007, he had already placed third in the French Under-8 Championship. In 2009, he won both the French Under-10 Championship and the Italian Under-10 Championship. He switched to the Italian Federation in 2010, and in 2011, 2011, he won the Italian Youth Under-12 and the Under-14 in 2013. He became an IM in early 2015 and graduated from high school that same year. He earned his third Grandmaster Norm later that year in August. The following year, he joined St. Louis University on scholarship to play on their new chess team headed by Grandmaster Alejandro Ramirez, and just recently, SLU won the Collegiate Chess League and the Collegiate Invitational. He is currently rated 2625 U.S. Chess and 2569 FIDE. He has just published The Carol Can Revisited, a dynamic repertoire for black, which is available for pre-order at uscfsales.com. He plans to apply for a permanent residency in the U.S. in the near future. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, Grandmaster Francesco Rimbaldi. Hi, thanks for having me. My first question is completely tongue-in-cheek. And it's, did you go from France to Italy to the U.S. kind of following the Fabiano Caruana model? Um, well, I, I guess our situations were slightly different. Um, <laughs> my, my, um, my mom moved to France when I was five uh, for just personal reasons. Um, so I, I was born in Milan, and then when I was five, I, I moved to France. Um, and I, I basically lived in France for... Uh, really most of my life until I was 17. And that's when I came to the U.S. Um, I came to the U.S. because of the, the scholarship that uh, SLU offered me. And it's for me, that was just um, that was a great opportunity to, you know, go to college education and keep playing chess. So um, I, I don't know exactly if it's the uh, the same as, as what uh, Fabiano did, given he was already further ahead in his career at the time. But um it's somewhat similar, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm also curious. I mean, obviously, you speak uh, French and Italian, and our listeners can also already tell that you speak English like a native speaker. Are there any other languages you know, and how did you learn English so well? Um, no, that, that's it. Um, I, I plan on uh, improving my Spanish, but that's uh, that's very far away from um, my, where we are currently. Um, I... I I was just introduced to the English language when I was a kid. So I guess I was lucky in that regard. My father spoke to me in English uh, since very early age, and I was able to come visit the States when I was a kid. So, um, yeah, I was just, um, I, I just was um, 
able to, you know, speak English, practice my English, and that helps. Uh, but thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And I, I saw an MSA that you, you had a fairly extensive scholastic career in the U.S. as well uh, while you were still living in Europe. Talk a little bit about the difference between the scholastic chess scene in the United States versus either France, Italy, or Europe as a whole. The, the scholastic chess scene? Um, well, well, that's that's very different. I mean, we don't really have um, university teams in Europe, um, whether it's Italy or France. So the whole concept of a chess scholarship at university is something that really doesn't exist in Europe. And, um, and I think it's, it's an amazing thing, actually, um, because, for example, if I, if I had gone to university in France, I would most likely not have been able to play any chess at all. Um, over there, even in high school, the way it works is, um, at least in, in my high school, but that's pretty much the same across the board, I would go to, I would start classes at 8. Uh, get out at 6 p.m. and uh, you know that leaves very, very little time for for any chess. And university is not that different. So really, the the model that they have here in the U.S., where you can study and uh, play chess, and you know you're uh, incentivized to to compete in chess and and keep playing, is um, is very unique and uh, really awesome. And I think that's you know part of the reason why uh, we're seeing so many strong players come to the U.S. It's because it's uh, it's not something you can really find in other countries. What about at younger ages? So let's say uh, ages 12 and under, you know, here, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for national uh, championship play and there's tournaments all over. Is it as readily available for kids in Europe? Um, I think it's growing. Um, I, I don't, uh, I sort of landed into chess kind of um, by surprise or by chance, I would say. Um, it wasn't something we, we really had, had planned for in any way. Um, I, I was just uh, introduced to this. There was this, this program that was happening once a week. Um, after, I think at the time I was like seven. So it was like Thursday evenings, half an hour with my classmates. Um, someone from the local club would come and, uh, you know, just have us play, teach us a few things here and there. Um, so I, I, I'm sure there are other programs like that I, I wouldn't say it's uh, very widespread For, from what I've heard it's um, more present in, in Spain than in other countries but I um, I don't personally know much about that um, I'm sure there are some opportunities I mean uh, youth tournaments always have a, a lot of participants and uh, uh, the chess scene is growing um, that being said it, it, um, it really sort of happened by chance with me so I, I don't really know um, I don't know if it would have happened in Italy, uh, for example. Uh, like, I, I don't know if I would have been exposed to the chess scene in Italy. So I guess that testifies to the, um, the opportunities that they have in France. The first big event you really, that you won outright was the French Under-10 Championship. Is that an open or a closed event? That's an open event. So anyone that's under 10, I mean, basically it was a bunch of 9-year-olds and 10-year-olds, because I'm, I'm pretty sure the 8-year-olds are playing the under-8 section. Um, but it's an open tournament. Um, it, it was for me. It was it was my big first goal, you know, because uh, I started playing chess in France, and so being able to you know win a tournament with all the other uh, best you know kids in France was uh, really what I was working towards in the first years of my uh, I wouldn't call it my career, but like of my chess endeavor. Uh, so so that that was huge for me. Um, and so I, I, I still very much cherish that, um, 
the the tournament. Um, it's it's one of those things that even though the the title in and of itself is you know uh, now that I'm a grandmaster, um, it seems like a sort of a small, uh, not very strong tournament. But from a more uh, romantic perspective, it's really something that uh, I care about a lot because that's that's where I started. Yeah. And if I didn't win the tournament, I don't know if I'd still be playing chess. You know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, and it's our national elementary championship that roughly corresponds to an under 10 championship. It's it's our biggest event of the year with over 2,000 kids. Just curious about how many would be participating in, in the French under 10. Um. Okay, so that, that's I, I don't have exact numbers in my mind, but I would guess that the French under ten, there, there were some something like a hundred players, maybe. Okay. Um, although, yeah, that's just roughly a hundred, I would say. Let's move to the topic that uh, is a specific reason why you're on the show today, and that's the Cairns Cup. Uh, talk about that event in 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 general. What your thoughts and impressions are of it? Well, I think it's a really nice event. Um, the the reason why is. We have a lot of tournaments where the the top players, uh, the the top male players play uh, against each other, and so you know we've seen we've seen them match up against each other many many times. Uh, they obviously they always deliver uh, amazing chess, so it's it's not something I get bored of. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's nice to see new people um, sh- sort of show up and you know new new matchups and you know new openings, new styles and. So I, I think it's always nice to you know to have a, a high quality tournament where uh, with new participants you know and and uh, especially in this case since it was uh, the, the the strongest female field um, or one of the strongest that you know we've we've ever seen in in such formats uh, I, I thought it was really interesting. And uh, Tatev Abrahamian wrote the main article uh, in the main tournament report. And your your article was uh, uh, supplemental of annotations of three Petrov games by Grandmaster uh, Musichuk. Am I pronouncing her name correctly? Do you know? Uh, I would guess so. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I, I guess so. Okay. I, I wouldn't improve on that, so. Okay. So what was it about about these three Petrov games that uh, attracted you to, and, and you wanted to make a deeper dive into them? Um, I just thought there were some interesting um, there were some interesting games, especially considering the sort of the theoretical context that we have right now. Um, I mean, if we want to take a step back, essentially what's happening is, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's the Petrov is, is now, uh, you know, maybe five years ago it, it wasn't that popular, but in the last few years it's become a, an extremely popular opening. Obviously, we know uh, Caruana used it against Carson in the World Championship, so that uh, that helped boost its popularity and it's just you know one of the main openings that are out there for um, um, you know when uh, for especially for for top players and so there were some some interesting ideas that were displayed uh, that the first one was this this uh, knight c3 idea um, that uh, I believe Muzichuk played in her game against Canero which was the only game I believe that uh, Canero uh, lost although she, she won the tournament in the end so that that was quite a feat to defeat her, um, and uh, yeah, there were some interesting developments. Uh, one game, uh, I believe it was um, the game between Carissa Yip and Kostenyuk was was mirroring the Carson Sheriff game from a few months ago, and uh, which was a, a a very nice game that Carlson won. 
And it's just sort of, they, they display some new ideas for white in the Petrov. Um, and so I, I think that readers can probably take something from it. Um, it. It's very hard for players with white to find anything against the Petrov because it's such a solid opening. So anytime there's a new idea that gives white some, you know, some active chances and um, just some, brings the game into new territory, that's uh, worth a mention. I mentioned in the introduction that you have this new book that we'll talk about in more detail later, but it, it, it's on the Karakan. It makes me wonder, do you, is, is opening theory your favorite part of the game, a specialty of yours, or is it just kind of coincidental that we have this writing in Chess Life and this book at the same time? Uh, no, I, I would say so. Uh, I, I'm definitely part of the younger generation that uh, has worked with engines uh, for you know my, my whole chess career. Um, so... Uh, so obviously when you work with engines all the time, you end up checking a lot of openings <laughs> because that's what they do best. And um, I, I really enjoy analyzing openings and, you know, finding new ideas. Um, so, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a coincidence. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So I, I'm also very curious about your process then. Um, so when you are planning to annotate some games for, for publication, um, and, and maybe it's different for magazine writing than it is for a book, do you do you just kind of play through a game quickly and then go back and, and, and start working on it and then bring in the computer? To, to talk about these details, because I think our listeners would be interested in your method. Well, so I mean, here, the what I was looking for was uh, a theme that, that was interesting uh, from an, so we're talking about an, an opening theme. So like some area of, of chess theory that, uh, that was featured in the tournament and where players, you know, displayed different ways to play the position or different ideas. And so I saw these in the early rounds that, uh, Muzicic played a, a few Petros and I thought that that, that was, uh, that was interesting to, to see that, um, it was featured in, in so many games in the, in the early rounds, especially. And to see, it's interesting to me to see how players build on what has already been played. Uh, because obviously, especially at a top level, uh, you're almost, you're generally aware of what has been already played, especially, you know, the important games, like, for example, Carson Shirov. And, and so it's interesting to see how, you know, knowing what happened in a previous game, how you, uh, how you play your own game. Uh, you know, which of the two players deviates. And then even just going forward, once the players are out of their opening preparation, just to see how the ideas from one game translate to the other and how it influences their course of action. Um, now, obviously, for, for my book, um, my book was a lot more academic in a way, since I, I basically, in the book, I'm trying to give Players for Black a you know, a complete coverage of the Karakan so that they can basically read the book and play the game without having to, you know, go through the burdensome process of analyzing for themselves and finding ideas. Um, so for the article, I was mostly trying to highlight some ideas and give some hints for the book. It's, you know, obviously it's much longer. It's a, um, a more thorough process. But in general, that's what I'm looking for. And, and how much do you use the engine and, and when do you bring it in? Do you bring it in almost immediately or do you tend to go through a, a game yourself first before <laughs> that? Well, that's a, that's a tricky question. <laughs> so I, I, unfortunately I, 
I won't lie. I really, I tend to have the engine on most of the time. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the best thing to do, but, um, it's, it's just, yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's a point to be made about how you probably shouldn't have the engine all, all the time. Um, but I hardly ever analyze without the engine. Um, I, I, I mean, it would, now that being said, this doesn't mean that I'm, you know, just looking at the evaluation for every single move and just, you know, looking at what the engine is saying. Uh, as the best opening ideas are generally either ideas that the engine doesn't immediately recommend uh, and that you can, uh, that, that have some sort of human intuition that, you know, not everyone who analyzes the position can find just because the engine is suggesting it. Um, or their, uh, their ideas were, uh, or you, the other way of finding good opening ideas is just by, you know, being more thorough and, um, you know, analyzing deeper and stronger engines. But, but the, my favorite ideas are the ones where, uh, you know, I, I could ask another grandmaster to look at the position for five minutes with an engine and he wouldn't necessarily find it because you need some sort of understanding of the position and maybe the move is like the third best move of the engine, but there's a hidden idea that a human would struggle to respond to in a game. So th those are the most interesting ideas. Uh, that being said, I, I do extensively use engines. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so uh, let's, let's use this as a, as a transition to your new book and you know, we'll, we'll make your publisher, uh, Thinkers Publishing, happy by talking about it. Uh, I guess uh, talk so, about yes. the, Yeah. Talk about the genesis of the book, whether you came to them with the idea or if they approached you and uh, what uh, readers will find uh, if they purchase it. Um, that, that was uh, definitely my idea. I mean, I mean, it was my intention. Uh, it, it was my, my goal for a while to, to write a book. Obviously, it's something that takes some time. So, um, you know, it's not something that I, I could just... Uh, Although I had been thinking about it for a while, it took, it, 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 I could then immediately translate into, uh, you know, me going ahead and writing the book. Um, but, you know, I've been reading opening books since I, I was very, very young. Um, I, I don't necessarily uh, know if that's a great thing. Um, some, uh, a lot of players would recommend that I read uh, books about end games or, or strategy, but uh, everyone makes use of opening books and, for someone like me who loves studying openings, um, you know, reading an opening book is always fascinating to see how the author approaches a certain position and uh, what his most interesting ideas are uh, given a particular opening. So it's always something that I wanted to do. Um, I sort of found the time this semester uh, to do it. So that's why that's how the book came about. Um, so, yeah, I basically approached them. I said I had uh, I thought I had some interesting material in the car. On. And I mean, the main reason why I decided to go ahead with the book is really because I, I do think that I have some interesting ideas um, that you know players, even I think I think even strong players um, can can use in their uh, in their tournament games. Um, I, I don't think that my Karakan repertoire would necessarily you know pass the acid test for a world championship match. I, I don't think so, but I'm. I'm fairly confident that you, you know even grandmasters can can get hints here and there, uh, and you know use the uh, use the work that I've put in to to um, build on it, and you know try some ideas in, in a few games here and there. Uh, you, you mentioned that you, you you like to read opening books. What have been some of your your favorites, and who are your favorite chess authors? Um, so uh, 
Well, I, I have a lot of the new and chess yearbooks. They're not necessarily uh, opening books, but they're, uh, you know, they, they have like short articles uh, about new developments in a certain opening. They come out, uh, I believe, four times a year. So um, th those are those are some. Um, I mean, there's been a bunch of opening books. Um, the Negi books are certainly... Uh, you know, the first ones that come to mind, he wrote, um, I think, I think three books. So one on E4 against uh, the Karakan, the French and the Philidor, one against the Nidorf and one against other Sicilians. Those are, those are amazing books. Uh, besides the openings, um, because I, I, myself, I don't really play E4, especially against the Sicilian that much. Uh, but besides the specific openings, the way in which he approaches the positions and the way in which he presents his ideas and, and explains the concepts, is uh, truly amazing. So I would say those are uh, definitely among the best opening books. Um, that being said, um, in terms of my favorite author, I think Tibor Karoli is definitely one of them for, especially his book on uh, Karpov, the Endgame Virtuoso. Uh, that's not an opening book at all. That's about Karpov's Endgames, but uh, uh, it, it was, you know, uh, it, it was, a, I think it's a great book. So. Well, uh, this might be a good time then to move on to our best question contest because I believe that all the books you mentioned, I can't, I can't verify 100%, but I think that they would all be available from our uh, sponsor, USCF Sales. Uh, US Chess Sales is the official chess shop of the US Chess Federation. They're the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, US Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and they will gladly match them. Shop today at uscfsales.com. Now, I have two people who wrote in with questions. Um, the first question I'm going to read is not our winner, but uh, it comes from Dr. Alexi Root, former U.S. women's champion. And I don't think she'll mind that she didn't win because she has won this contest more than anybody. And um, her question for you, Francesco, is if you were in charge of invitations, what player would you invite to the 2021 Karen's Cup who wasn't already a competitor in the 2020 Karen's Cup? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> that, that's a great question. I guess the, the 2019 U.S. champion definitely uh, comes to mind. Uh, so that's Jenny for you. Um, that, that seems like, uh, I mean, I would love to see her play against, you know, the the their top players in the world. So so that I guess that that would be the, the logical answer. Yeah, I, I I think that's a solid one. It, it would obviously it would obviously great be great to see Hui Fan play also. Uh but I, I don't know how realistic that is um given her um you know other commitments and uh what she she likes to do. But obviously it would be amazing to see her play since she's uh you know um extremely strong. Dr. Root has always been a friend of this podcast, so thank you again for your question. As you see, you generated yet another solid answer. But the winner of this month's $50 gift certificate, and you will find this in your email inbox by the time you listen to this, is Andy Titchener. And uh, Francesco, he asks his question, it's, it's multiple questions, but they all get to kind of the same point. So uh, let me read all of them here. How do you see over-the-board play changing during the COVID-19 crisis? Do you see a rise or a fall in tourneys and what situations might change in players' behaviors and rules? And he also wants to know, do you see the possibility of future invitational events for FIDE and or US chess being played online? 
Uh, well, yeah, those are great questions. I mean, it's um, so I, I had planned to play a lot of chess tournaments uh, in, in like in-person chess tournaments in the months of March and, and April. So uh, that my plans definitely got canceled. Um, so and and I'm not the only one. And and so yeah, we've all been switching to to online chess. Um, there's definitely been been a spike in uh, you know online chess activity. Uh, the, we've had, we've had things like the Collegiate Chess League that have been, that I think was in, in its first edition this year and was, uh, the, you know, the first time that U.S. universities, um, competed against each other in, in an online setting, um, and still won that. So that was great. Um, but we've seen a bunch of tournaments. I mean, for example, the Carson, the Magnus Carson Invitational is, is going on. And that's that's got to be one of the highest level, uh, you know, online tournaments that that we've seen really. And uh, we there's there's other uh, even U.S. organizers that are doing a great job. Uh, I should certainly mention mention the Pacific Northwest um, Chess Center that's run by uh, Shuhao He, and he he's uh, organizing some amazing online tournaments with prizes that are attracting strong players from nearly all over the world i think in the i think that the next tournament that's being played this weekend uh will have players like dominguez uh karyakin um and you know many other strong grandmasters that live both in the u.s and abroad so we're definitely seeing a lot of online activity and you know uh, we can't not play chess so uh we have to we have to figure out ways we definitely can't play uh, well, unfortunately, I don't know when we will be able to to play chess again. Because if you think about it, chess is pretty much the riskiest activity from a health perspective, uh, you know, that we can engage in. So I don't know when we'll be able to play in person again. So I think until then, we'll definitely see a lot of online chess. How is it working with your SLU uh, chess team? Are you guys still doing training sessions online? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the beautiful thing about chess is, you know, we, we, it's very easy for us to train online. So uh, we, we I, I think we, we train on our laptops most of the time. So we, we don't necessarily need a, you know, a physical board for that. Um, so yeah, we're definitely, we're definitely training. Uh, we're, we're hoping that we'll be able to, uh, that the team will be able to play Panams uh, next year and, you know, resume normal uh, chess activities. But uh, we're definitely training, and, and yeah, and we're playing in all these uh, online competitions that are being organized. Uh, I, I also mentioned in the opening about uh, having won the Collegiate Chess League and the Collegiate Invitational. Why don't you uh, uh, tell our listeners who the team members are at SLU, and, and maybe throw in a little bit about what their their strengths and, if you want to, their weaknesses as well as as uh, team players. Sure. Um, so, well, I mean, so. Uh, our, our team captain is, uh, is Alexander Ipatov. Uh, he's been here for three years now, and he's, uh, uh, you know, a very strong uh, player. One that uh, I think, I think as a team, we uh, sort of look up to in the because he brings a very different approach to the game, very practical, um, uh, maybe less theoretically sound, but you know, very practical and dynamic approach. Uh, we also have Darius Schwierz. Um, he's uh, also another 26-plus uh, uh, player from Poland. Um, and then we have Benjamin Buck, which is a more recent uh, addition to the team. 
then we have we have me, we have Nicolas Teodoro, um, uh, I am uh, soon to be GM, we all hope. Um, certainly the uh, COVID-19 situation didn't help with his quest for the title, but he'll get there soon. Uh, my roommate, Jamil uh, Janali Marandi, is a GM from Turkey. We have American Grandmaster Aksha Chandra. And then we have uh, Dorsa Derashani and um, Stavrula Tzolakidu. And I am from Greece, both are women players. And we had, this year at Panams, we had a all-women's team, which is, I think, uh, I don't know how many times it had been done in the past. So I know that... Um, uh, I think it's nice to see that we're we're making progress towards you know having all women's team also compete. I think Texas Tech also had an all women's team at the at the Panams, and so it's just nice to see uh, to see you know U.S. collegiate chess grow in that direction as well. Um, I sure hope I didn't forget anyone. <laughs> you mentioned a lot of players. So how does it work? Do you do you divide it into say an A and a B team, or even an A, B, and C team, or what? What is that method? Yeah, yeah. For for the yeah for the Panams, we definitely have. Uh, so every team has four players. So we divide it into. We had two um, teams in the. Uh, we had two yeah two like open teams and then a girl team. Um, Alexander Patov was leading the eight team, and we decided to have me lead the B team. Uh, eventually, uh, the way it works is four universities uh, qualify for final four. And so in case both teams qualify, only one can go and the next team in the standings qualifies. So it's not like both teams can qualify to the final four, but it's, you know, the more teams you have, the greater is your chance. Because if one team doesn't perform well, the other one can uh, can do so and, and hopefully qualify. So this year, team A qualified. And uh, so we did qualify for final four, although obviously final four is can so uh, I don't know uh, if we'll ever play that final four or mm-hmm. how that will work. Um, and talk about your your academic life because when I think of back to when I was in college, the, the thought of studying chess on top of my coursework <laughs> that that wants to make my head explode. Uh, wh- what are you studying? What's your major? So I'm a statistics uh, and finance double major. I take my studies quite seriously, <laughs> so I spend a lot of time studying. Um, but I have to say, chess is—it's um, actually, in a way, quite relaxing to to do chess because um, you know I just we just I, and I think I can speak for all of us on the team. We just sort of feel at home when we're uh, studying chess. Obviously, uh, there's still some hard work involved. It's not like uh, studying chess is always just fun. But at the same time, it, there's just you know we're all chess players. We've all been playing chess for so many years. So there's something about it that just, uh, you know, brings us together both actually as a group. Uh, I mean, we really hang out quite a bit um, uh, with each other and also just, you know, with the game. Um, we we, uh, we enjoy working on chess, uh, especially especially for me. I have to say it's, it's a very nice experience to be able to work with other grandmasters. I mean, I, I've had a, a roommate and he's been a grandmaster for four years, so... Uh, that's not something that would have happened had I stayed in Europe. You know, I, I think in uh, where I lived, the city of Grenoble in, in France, I don't think there's any grandmasters in the region. So, uh, you know, to be able to walk around camp- campus and go to class with, uh, for example, someone as strong as Ipatov is, is a really nice experience. 
so what you just said was very interesting to me, and it, it makes me want to uh, jump back in your career a bit. Uh, since GMs were, were not something that you saw in your day-to-day life, when did you or your family first realize that, yeah, you've got a real talent for this game and we should invest time, money, other resources into teaching young Francesco this this game and seeing how far he can go? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean of course, even though there's no GMs in the area, I can always connect with GMs on Skype and I've had various GMs help me with my training. Um, my parents have always taken a, you know, a very uh, relaxed approach when it comes to chess in the sense that uh, it was always, uh, you know, do your homework first and when then do chess. Uh, obviously, they'd only work to a certain extent because um, I would, you know, do all I could to get in as much chess as I, as I could. <laughs> that was all I wanted to do when I was a kid. So, uh, but I, you know, I wouldn't say we made, like, huge investments until, obviously, I graduated from high school. Then I took a year off and played only chess, which was, which was something. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, thanks to the you know, thanks to the internet and all the resources we have today, it's easy to connect with other grandmasters. But it's, it's, it's still not the same as, you know, walking around campus and just doing, uh, working on a machine learning homework with another 2600. Right. Or, or just walking down the street in St. Louis where you, uh, it's hard not to bump into another GM somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm also curious when you were so attracted to chess so quickly and at such a young age. What, what was it about chess that, that got to you? Was, was it the puzzle-like nature of it? Was it something mathematical or artistic? What was it? Well, there's a bunch of things. Um, and it's definitely a combination of, of what you said. Um, it, you know, it just suits my personality. And I think a lot of chess players will, um, will agree with that. Uh, there's just something about chess that um, suits people like me. Um, in the beginning... Uh, you know, I have to say one of the one of the primary incentives is just the fact that you win games. You know, if I if I hadn't, I always joke that if I hadn't beaten my my classmates in uh, when I was seven years old, I, I probably wouldn't be a grandmaster now, and I don't know if I'd be playing chess. So it, it's one of, one of the main things is winning, and that that's just so important. But at the same time, it's not just about winning, and there's a lot of aspects of the game that are. Uh, they're great. I mean, and that's why we all love chess. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a great game. Uh, there's always new things things happening in chess. Uh, it it constantly changes. Uh, every game is different. There's new challenges, and it's it's you know it's just a very intellectual um, sport, and so it's it's just uh, beautiful. Well, well, well said. Uh, Jumping back to college now, so have you given much thought about uh, after you graduate? Are you, are you planning to go into the finance world, or do you plan to give professional chess, chess a try? Uh, no, definitely. My, my goal would be yeah, to, uh, to try to uh, play chess in the U.S., um, so obviously that, that uh, depends on, on a couple of factors. Um, so first of all, I, I, I need to... Uh, uh, if I, if I were to, to play chess in the US, I'd have to uh, immigrate here. Um, but yeah, ultimately the goal would be to to play chess uh, and hopefully one day with the American flag. And th- this is something that's always fascinated me uh, about grandmaster level chess because you know for for us down here at class level, you know every two hundred points is is a is a rating class, and you can usually tell a difference in the games there. That that seems to be a very good uh, marker. But at the grandmaster level, 
um, you know, you can be a 25 to 2600 grandmaster, but there's also 2800 level super GMs who are a whole mm-hmm. class above, uh, seemingly. Yep. What at, at this level, what is the difference between a 2800 and a 2600? Is it sporting or is there something specific about chess knowledge? So every player has their own, you know, strengths and weaknesses and their own, uh, specific abilities in various areas of the game. In general, a 2800 has, uh, even compared to a 2700, has uh, just a a way greater understanding of the position. Uh, And uh, just, I mean, it comes down to subtleties, obviously. Uh, But there's... The difference is is quite big, you know. (laughs) Uh, As I've, I've been trying to get to 2600 for a few years now so and i've been inching closer to be, to be fair uh, but it, it's it's not easy there's definitely still a big difference even between like a 2550 and a 2650 uh i think it has you know it depends on on every player uh there's a lot of psychology involved some players don't reach their uh maximum potential in, you know, just because of psychological factors, like they don't perform well under, uh, you know, in stressful situations or uh, their decision-making can get blurred in important moments. Uh, but but generally, there's also just a, a greater understanding. And actually, that's that's one of the things that I really enjoyed coming here since I was able to, you know, just play Blitz for fun every day against 2650s. Um, I was able to uh, see in greater detail how much they know about the game and so sort of understand why, uh, where I could improve and, and why, you know, I wasn't 2650 already. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that a 2550 like me doesn't know. So, um, so there, there's still a, a very big difference between a 2550 and a 2650, for example. We're doing this on audio only, so you can't see me, but my class level shoulders just slumped dramatically hearing you say that that there's still much more for you to learn at your level. Oh, definitely. So, I'm also curious, do you happen to remember what age you were and maybe even what your rating was the first time you beat a Grandmaster? Yeah, uh, so I remember the setting. I think that's something that few chesters will forget. So I, I know exactly, it was a weekend tournament, it was a Friday evening. And uh, my father brought me to the tournament, you know, after work for him. Um, I, I think I was 11, although I could have been 12. So it, it was it was somewhere in that range. Um, I was I was either a 2150 or a 2200, something like that. Um, it it was it was actually so it was actually a really a really nice experience in the sense that obviously you know. Everyone was delighted um, that I that I won the game. Um, it was a, a fairly nice game too. Uh, what happened after was not as good. So it was a five game five round tournament. So the first you know it was one round on Friday evening, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. And so the round on Friday evening, as you know, a lot of players who play weekend tournaments uh, will uh, certainly relate to is 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 very tough because you play late on Friday, then you play early on Saturday morning. And being a young kid, I definitely didn't take the victory uh, well and I, I think it's I mean it's something that just happens it's, it's just normal it's, it's a normal uh, it's a normal consequence uh, it's when you have such a good game 
even though, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that it, I let it get to my head and I just, uh, you know, became arrogant or anything, but uh, the, the next morning I played against the 1900 and lost. So <laughs> it just, it just influences your thinking because somehow, uh, you know, even I remember playing the 1900 as the position got uh, somewhat suspicious. Uh, there's thoughts going to your head like, oh my God, how is this happening? I just beat a grandmaster. Now I'm expected to beat grandmasters all the time. I have to beat the 1900, you know? So the, it's one of the thing, those things that you have to learn the hard way. Um, just because you beat a GM doesn't mean you can't lose to a 1900 in the next round. That's exactly what happened to me. So um, that, that, was a, that was quite an experience. But uh, yeah, I think it was something like that. I was probably 11 or 12 and uh, my opponent was, uh, and I was, uh, sorry, I was 2150 or 2200. It also reminds me of what you just said about my one of my favorite Bobby Fischer quotes about, you know, one day you teach your opponent a lesson, the next day your opponent teaches you a lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And it was very sad because I lost all my rating gain the next morning, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will note that you sounded the most uh, animated discussing this, this first win over a grandmaster than just about anything else we discussed today. So I don't know <laughs> what that says about your psychology there, Francesco. <laughs> um, now, you also, your father taught you is is he an an accomplished player in his own right or did he just teach you the fundamentals <laughs> and that was what he knew uh he, he won't like the answer but definitely not um he's never played uh he's never played a actual rated tournament he doesn't have a rate he just knew how to play uh, and thought it would be nice to teach me uh but he's never played in a tournament in his life yeah he, he doesn't have a rating he just uh he just somewhat knows uh, about chess uh, sometimes he, he thinks he understands a lot and can uh, teach me some things but um, his knowledge is, is quite limited, to be fair. Okay. So, Francesco, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your first effort writing for Just Life magazine. I'm sure it's going to be uh, not your last. And also, congratulations on your new book that is available at uscfsales.com. So I encourage our readers to go check that out, especially if you're a Caro Can players. Francesco, again, thank you so much for joining us on Cover Stories of Just Life. Yeah, thank you so much. And I look forward to contributing to Just Life. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Just Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Just Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the Donate button at the same website. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess.